I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. There's a beige, nondescript, completely forgettable office tower that sits at 277 Front Street West. It's right across the street from the CBC in downtown Toronto. Depending on what you think of CSIS, you could consider this either mission control for one of the globe's premier intelligence agencies, a member of the Five Eyes Alliance, a place in which sensitive dossiers trade hands and top secret information is collected. Or there is evidence to suggest that this is just another government bureaucracy with the same issues as a dozen other government bureaucracies. HR complaints of a toxic workplace, crisis of trust and leadership, old boys network, managers dropping dimes and complaining about each other and each other's employees. Look, foreign interference by the Chinese government into Canadian politics has become probably the biggest news story of the year. Because of CSIS documents that have been leaked to the press. The foreign interference news story has generated dozens of headlines that has dominated Canadian coverage for a long time now. And yet, despite all that coverage, we still know so little about it. What was the interference? Why did it occur? Did it work? Who was involved? We still just don't really know. And most of what you've heard me say about this 
is that we need to know. We need transparency. We need an inquiry. We need a full accounting of what our leaders knew about this and when, because there could be a lot more to the foreign interference story than we have been led to believe. But the truth is, there could also be a lot less to it. I have been aware throughout this ongoing political drama of murmurings, murmurings of discontent from people who know about this stuff, from reporters, some of them senior reporters, some of them retired reporters. These are journalists who have covered national security and Ottawa and China, and the tone of their reactions to the recent reporting on foreign interference and the ensuing scandal has been consistently critical and highly skeptical. What they believe is that the decline of institutional beat knowledge about national security in Canada's newsrooms has left reporters and their editors without enough context to really understand institutions like CSIS, our spy agency, without the context to understand the information that leaks from CSIS. Today, we're going to hear from one of these senior journalists about his skepticism regarding foreign interference. We're going to hear an editorial, an opinion, but a reported opinion and an informed one. Bruce Livesey knows about which he speaks. He knows about the specific newsrooms he's going to talk about because he used to work for both of them. He was an investigative reporter for both of the news organizations that have been reporting leaked CSIS documents, the Globe and Mail and Global News. And full disclosure, you may remember a Canada Land exclusive from 2015 about how Global News killed a documentary that Bruce Livesey produced about the Koch brothers' influence on the Canadian oil sands, and then fired him after he spoke with me about that. I think journalists are most valuable when they are simultaneously wide open to learning something totally new and super squinty about what they're hearing. It's tricky to be curious and skeptical at the same time, but that's the job at its best. And here's today's editorial by Bruce Livesey. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Jennifer Alman, Brendan Beamish, Jordan Grace, Dan Fox, Michael Moniz, Deanna Van Leuven, Carly Clapp, and Alex. Hi, my name is Alex. I'm a tradesman from Saskatoon, and I support Canada Land because the media landscape these days is tough to navigate. Shortcuts keeps me informed with the analysis of the big stories, and I love just how wild some of the duly noted stories are. Backbench has taught me a lot about political issues across the country and has even motivated me to volunteer for a local political organization. To top it all off, The Monday Show is a consistent source for interesting, well-informed news. Keep killing it, Canada land. It is actually incredible that we have this uprising at our intelligence body. This has never happened before. They must be very worried about how the Prime Minister is working against the interests of his own country. That's Pierre Polyev back in March, talking about the China foreign interference scandal, a gift from the political heavens to the Conservative Party leader. 
Since last fall, when intelligence leaks to two media outlets began alleging that China has meddled in the past two federal elections, the Tories have feasted on the controversy. And so they are so concerned about how the Prime Minister is acting against Canada's interests and in favour of a foreign dictatorship's interests that they are actually releasing this information publicly. But in May, when Prime Minister Trudeau offered Polyev the chance to personally examine some of the confidential intelligence reviewed by David Johnston, the former Governor-General, who was hired as a special rapporteur by Trudeau to investigate the foreign interference matter, the Tory leader refused. Nor would Polyev meet with Johnston. If he had, the Tories might learn that CSIS is not actually well equipped to investigate China or allegations of foreign interference. There's definitely a lack in terms of intelligence officers that can speak Mandarin. I can't give you the numbers, that would be classified, but it's it's very low, very, very low, <laughs> to the point that it would shock, I think, most Canadians. Huda McBeal is a former intelligence officer who spent almost 16 years at CSIS and left the agency in late 2017. At one point during her career, McBeal was assigned to gather intelligence on China and its spies sent to acquire Canada's military secrets as well as investigate Chinese front companies, although she didn't speak any Chinese languages or know the culture. So we don't have a lot of analysts that really understand China in depth and have the linguistic skills to be able to go out in communities and you know recruit really good sources and have quality type of information to really counter the threat. Or maybe they would discover the media's reporting is quite flawed. The scandal exists solely because people either within CSIS or the Federal Civil Service with access to classified material leaked intelligence reports to two mainstream media outlets, the Globe and Mail and Global News. And it seemed to me that the media organizations were bringing a certain language to these intelligence reports that we had not seen, which I was curious about and on occasion alarmed about. Dr. Wesley Wark is a recognized expert on the intelligence world, a former international relations scholar at the Universities of Toronto and Ottawa, a senior fellow at a think tank, the Centre for International Governance Innovation, who served two terms on the Prime Minister's Advisory Council on National Security under Stephen Harper. Wark did a deep dive into the media coverage of the foreign interference controversy, which he posted on Substack. Among his findings, Work noticed that the Globe and Mail's reporting seemed to only cite seven or eight specific intelligence reports. The concern is if you have access to seven or eight intelligence documents, you have access to seven or eight out of how many thousands? I mean, in other words, you only have a tiny slice of the picture. It's a tiny handful of the overall production of, of the intelligence community. We've not seen, for example, any reports out of the RCMP, which is a you know principal player in national security and intelligence. So we certainly don't have a waterfront picture. So far, the controversy has cost one MP's reputation and posts in the Liberal Party's caucus, led to the hiring and resignation of Johnston, endless parliamentary hearings, and allegations that China has targeted prominent Tories. According to the report, China targeted specific Conservative candidates in hopes of a Liberal minority government. The crisis has given rise to continued calls by the opposition for Trudeau to set up a public inquiry. Will he allow Canadians to get to the truth and prevent this from happening again before the next election with a full public inquiry now? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. 
But is China really meddling in our democracy? Nobody I spoke to disputes China is interfering in Canada, whether it's intimidating the Chinese diaspora, laundering money, or trying to steal industrial and government secrets. But many foreign governments do that here, and it doesn't mean China is trying to influence elections. Is this an overhyped scandal whipped up by credulous media, fed shoddy and conflicting information, originating from an agency, CSIS, which has a long and disturbing history of internal dysfunction and producing misleading and false intelligence? So misleading that over the past two decades, it's cost taxpayers an estimated $100 million in settlements and legal fees to pay for CSIS's screw-ups. This is what I set out to examine. And what I found should lead Canadians to be deeply skeptical about what they've been reading and seeing in the media. For one thing, there's nothing new about claims that China is interfering or spying in Canada. Project Sidewinder was a joint RCMP CSIS kind of a research operation. So my name is Andrew Mitrovica. I'm a former investigative reporter and writer. Now, the essence of Sidewinder was to examine Chinese influence campaigns. Project Sidewinder. I know it sounds Bond-like, but it was not MI6. It was a term coined by CSIS in the 1990s for their investigation about Chinese interference in Canada's business and politics. By 1999, Andrew Mitrovica was an investigative reporter at the Globe and Mail, where he and a colleague, Jeff Salat, were writing a series of stories on Chinese influence in Canada. And they kept hearing about the secret CSIS RCMP research report called Sidewinder. The main thrust of Sidewinder was that the Chinese influence campaigns were deeply embedded in Canadian society and that this posed a threat to Canada's national security. Sidewinder also claimed that Chinese operatives were influencing Canada's political system even funding political parties. Someone leaked a copy to Mitrovica, which ended up as a front-page story in the Globe and Mail. After the Globe stories about Sidewinder were published, the Security Intelligence Review Committee, known as CERC, the body that oversees CSIS, conducted an investigation. In their report, CERC said they found no evidence of Chinese political interference that the threat was being ignored, or the government wasn't being made aware when threats manifested. What is your feeling now when you sort of look back on all this? It was just a report. For me, I think that this is one of the fundamental differences between the way that Salad and I approached our reporting about China and Sidewinder. We weren't wedded to these reports. You know, we weren't married to Project Sidewinder. It wasn't our role as reporters to defend Sidewinder. My own view was, was Sidewinder, it was a reach. Reading some of the information, it was a reach. That was my view. You feel the tenor is different now. From where I'm sitting, what I find somewhat disturbing is that it appears that there is hardly any skepticism or doubt isn't it the job of journalists to question a spy agency and its information? After all, CSIS is an intelligence agency, not an evidence-gathering organization like the RCMP. For law enforcement, their standard of proof is what would stand up in court. That's not true of CSIS. They have a lower bar. 
Intelligence can come from a variety of sources, including what people say or overhear, which can often be rumor, speculation, or hearsay. The CSIS Act, you know, it's meant to collect, analyze, and provide information to government. So it's more of an advance warning to government regarding international and domestic security issues, trends. And so it is not meant for criminal prosecution. And so CSIS doesn't collect evidence. It collects information, which it analyzes. But who is doing the analyzing and what are their biases? After all, what its employees have discovered is that when it comes to gender, nationality, sexuality, and skin color, CSIS discriminates. I experienced it throughout my career, the comments, the discrimination, not seeing people like me who are fully qualified get in to the organization. Huda McBeal, a daughter of African immigrants, went to work for CSIS at its headquarters in Ottawa in 2002. She was the only CSIS intelligence officer in counterterrorism who spoke fluent Arabic. She soon found out CSIS was a hostile workplace for someone like herself, a black Muslim woman in an overwhelming white male workforce. I excused a lot of the negative comments and the racism, the bias, even within investigations that I saw, excused it often because, you know, I felt that the knowledge gap just has to get that much better for people to be able to do the work and not have those kind of biases. In 2017, she and four other intelligence officers sued CSIS for $35 million after suffering years of racial, sexual, homophobic, and abusive harassment. I mean, I remember re reading the, the statement of claim for the 2017 lawsuit and being shocked by the stories, all the things you experienced. You sort of felt that in this day and age, you never, you know, you don't see that in workplaces. Yes. And the media said the same thing. You know, I remember talking to Michelle Shepard of the Toronto Star. You know, that was a conversation in newsrooms as well. How could this be happening at CSIS? You know, there is very much like culture that's very macho-like. We can say what we want to say. You know, we don't have to consider professionalism in the way that we conduct ourselves within the workplace. At the time, audits by the Canadian Human Rights Commission found no visible minorities or Indigenous people among CSIS's managers, and only about one in six were women. Overall, less than 15% of its workplace was visible minority. In 2017, CSIS conducted an in-depth probe of its Toronto office and said there was a lack of diversity, an old boy's toxic culture where sexist, racist and abusive language was commonplace. David Vigneault, the current director of CSIS, admitted in 2020 that, quote, yes, systemic racism does exist here, and yes, there's a level of harassment and fear of reprisal within the organization, close quote. CSIS quickly settled the employee's lawsuit for an undisclosed sum. Can they actually gather information that is unbiased when the organization has a systemic racism problem. You know, they can't do that work objectively and they also can't do it effectively. I wrote a piece on the Hill Times about the fact that the lack of diversity is in itself a threat to national security. Muckbeal says CSIS's internal hostility towards minorities 
means there is a shortage of Chinese experts. You can't do the work unless you have diverse workforce in terms of, you know, not just, you know, at the practical level in terms of surveillance officers or communication analysts that would have, you know, the different language skills that are required to do the job, as well as, you know, we need intelligence officers that are going to be able to conduct interviews in a manner that is respectful and understands, you know, the sensitivities in different cultures. So is it any surprise CISA simply gets things wrong and has a long history of misconduct? CISA has been caught spying on environmentalists, indigenous people, social justice and peace groups, and lawyers. In 2016, it was discovered CISA obtained the tax records of Canadians without obtaining federal warrants, and then lied about keeping the records after saying they'd been deleted. Four years later, a federal judge said CSIS had a cavalier approach to candor and the rule of law. He had discovered the agency had approved an illegal operation without consent and then used information based on this operation to get warrants without informing a judge of the illegality involved. CSIS's most horrific cases of being wrong involved the rendition of Canadian citizens. In the post-9-11 period, Canada's security agencies came to suspect that three Muslim Canadians were somehow connected to Al-Qaeda. On separate personal visits to Syria, Abdullah al-Malki, Muyad Nuruddin, and Ahmed al-Mati were all eventually arrested and tortured with the complicity of CSIS and the RCMP. After 9-11, they adopted a form of rendition where they tipped off authoritarian regimes to arrest Canadians who were visiting those countries and have them interrogated always using torture. CSIS would even sometimes provide the torturers with the questions to be asked. The most famous rendition case was that of Mahar Arar, an engineer living in Ottawa. In September of 2002, Arar was flying home, passing through New York, when the Americans detained him based on misinformation supplied by the RCMP and CSIS. Arar had fallen under suspicion because he was spotted meeting one day in Ottawa a man by the name of Abdullah al-Malki. Despite no evidence, CSIS and the RCMP were convinced al-Malki was an al-Qaeda sympathizer. The Americans soon sent Arar to Jordan and ultimately on to Syria. Arar was held for 10 months by Syrian military intelligence in a cell he described as being the size of a grave. Arar said he was initially beaten constantly and whipped with an electrical cable. CSIS visited with Syrian intelligence while Arar was incarcerated, but did not seek his release. Arar was held for almost a year in Syria before he was finally let go in October of 2003. Yet both before and after his release, confidential sources within the intelligence world selectively leaked damaging claims about Arar to certain journalists. You're getting these selective leaks. And all of that institutional memory seems to have been lost on those reporters in terms of not only what happened to Canadian citizens, the horror of what happened to Canadian citizens as a result of the dreck that was being fed and so-called intelligence of both the RCMP and CSIS. And so that's the context with which these quote-unquote revelations have to be understood in. These are institutions that do lie, that do mislead, that do get it wrong, and get it wrong often, at great human expense. 
One of the journalists who received and published erroneous information about Arar is a veteran member of the Ottawa Press Corps, Robert Fife. Nicknamed Fife the Knife, he's been reporting from Ottawa since the late 1970s, worked for a variety of media organizations, and broken big stories. Back in 2003, Fife was bureau chief for Can West and writing about the Arar affair. In July of that year, he wrote a front-page story for the Ottawa Citizen that quoted an unnamed government official saying that Arar is, quote, a very bad guy, end quote, who apparently received military training at an Al-Qaeda base. In December 2003, almost three months after Arar was released, Fife wrote another story that appeared in newspapers across Canada. Based on confidential intelligence sources, it said Canadian and American officials were 100% sure Arar had trained with Al-Qaeda. The Arar Commission, set up to investigate his detention, later found the information in the Fife stories was not true and had a devastating impact on Arar. In the end, Arar was paid $10 million by the federal government. Three other Canadians who'd been victims of rendition, including Abdullah Al-Malki, were paid another $31 million all because of bogus intelligence from CSIS and the RCMP. Fife found himself covering the fallout stories of apologies and compensation, and today he is the Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief. A dysfunctional intelligence agency, riddled with racism and a lack of expertise on China, should have meant journalists covering allegations of Chinese interference in Canada did so with a degree of skepticism. But that doesn't seem to be the case, based on what unfolded in a China interference coverage. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free 
with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. After 9-11, CSIS focused much of its attention on the terrorism threat. But as that concern waned, the agency began devoting more resources to China, Canada's second largest trading partner. After Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, China has taken an increasingly belligerent and repressive approach with its critics internally and abroad, and with other nations. I mean, bluntly, how much of a threat from China to to Canada's democracy really exists? I think I would start by underscoring the fact that, you know, foreign lobbies and corporate interests interfere and undermine Canadian democracy and Canadian democratic institutions all the time. Uh, My name is Vincent Wong, and I'm an assistant professor of law at the University of Windsor. Vincent Wong was born in China, but grew up in Canada and as a human rights activist. One thing that comes to mind is, for example, in the media sector, right, U.S. hedge funds uh, buying up an enormous amount of Canadian media. So this idea to bring home on that is not all foreign interference that undermines Canadian democracy is perceived as equally as foreign and as equally as threatening. And that's kind of where uh, these yellow peril tropes come into play when thinking about uh, what you could call China panic, right? The idea that there is something specifically and uniquely dangerous and undermining about potential links to China. That being said, China is a foreign state that has uh, particularly aggressive, especially uh, under the Xi Jinping government, foreign agenda. China's Communist Party has something called the United Front Work Department, which spies on and neutralizes critics of the regime inside the country and abroad within the Chinese diaspora, and tries to influence other countries. Canada's Chinese community has long complained about pro-Beijing forces intimidating people here who criticize China on human rights and democracy. The number one thing that's always been on their mind is to ensure the stability of its domestic rule. And then number two is economic interests. Another source of concern emerged on Canada's west coast, where an enormous amount of money has flowed from China into cities like Vancouver. Fears arose that some of the money is dirty cash and being laundered in real estate and in BC's casinos by Chinese criminals, many with ties to China's Communist Party. A reporter at the Vancouver province and son, Sam Cooper, began writing about this issue. In 2018, he joined Global News investigative team in Ottawa, where he continued focusing on the China threat. Here's Cooper speaking before a parliamentary committee that was investigating the foreign interference issue. While covering foreign investment in Vancouver real estate, I started researching foreign interference. Partially as a result of Cooper's work, the BC government set up the Cullen Commission in 2019, which eventually concluded billions were indeed being laundered and not enough was being done about it. For too long, money laundering has been kept on the sidelines for police, for law enforcement, for regulators, and for governments. Cooper even wrote a book in 2021 called Willful Blindness, which laid out his case that Canada has become a critical money laundering hub for transnational drug dealers, often with ties to China's Communist Party. By now, he was convinced the CSIS analysts who produced the Sidewinder report back in the 1990s were onto something. In his book, he wrote, 
Sidewinder's core allegations look more prescient year after year. Here is Cooper talking about some of his work this spring at a parliamentary hearing. I have commented that uh, this document is sourced from investigations, and uh, the document very clearly states that, uh, from my recollection, uh, the Toronto consulate directed clandestine funding into an election interference network. But Cooper's journalism has been criticized. He has faced up to nine lawsuits stemming from reporting related to China. None of these cases have been heard in court. While it's not uncommon for an investigative journalist to be sued, I feel that's still a rather high number. Meanwhile, two reporters at the Global Mail's Ottawa Bureau, Robert Fife and Stephen Chase, were also taking an interest in China's influence in Canada. So why are the leakers spilling to these reporters? Today, we know the motivation of one of the leakers. In March, the Globe and Mail ran an op-ed article written by their confidential source, described as a national security official. He said he was leaking because warnings about foreign interference were not being heeded. He said, I endeavored alone and with others to raise concerns about this threat directly to those in a position to hold our top officials to account, he wrote. Regrettably, those individuals were unable to do so. We're now going back to what got me interested in the story in the first place, these latest stories on Chinese interference in Canada. The first story that suggested China was interfering in our elections appeared last November 7th on Global News and produced by Sam Cooper. On this Monday night, allegations China interfered in Canada's 2019 election. The fight against foreign influence. What's the government doing about it? The story said China had filtered $250,000 to 11 candidates during the 2019 federal election, and Trudeau had been briefed about this clandestine network. The story claimed the money flowed through intermediaries, and China had even placed agents in MPs' offices. This story was based on CISA's information. It triggered a tsunami of outrage which would grow over the coming months. Yet there's no evidence this story is true. The $250,000 claim has since been refuted by multiple sources. In December, the Globe and Mail ran a story saying their sources said there was no evidence of covert funding from China, and none of the 11 candidates had been compromised. The National Security and Intelligence Advisor, Jody Thomas, testified before a parliamentary committee saying there was no evidence of the funding claim. And David Johnston, the special rapporteur, examined the intelligence and found the same thing, and said there was no evidence the candidates were acting in concert with each other, and that Trudeau was never briefed on the matter. Here's intelligence expert Wesley Wark. It was never very clear to me how this alleged network was, was supposed to operate and how money was meant to flow and, and you know all of those kinds of details never made its way into the media reporting from Global News. Cooper seemed to admit the same thing. In December, he ran a story that said Trudeau had not been briefed and that China had not earmarked any money for the 2019 election. But the story changed again when in February, Cooper wrote another story that made pretty much the same claim. Trudeau had been warned more than a year prior to the 2019 election that Chinese agents were assisting Canadian candidates running for office and China was funding a network to this end. Cooper based this story on a four-page memo. 
But when Johnston looked into the matter, he found Cooper was basing the story on an early draft of the memo. The later draft sent to Trudeau did not contain the claim China was assisting candidates nor suggested any recommendations. In short, Cooper's story suggested inaction by the Liberals when, in fact, the memo seen by Trudeau did not say China was helping candidates. Therefore, no action was required. But by then, the Globe and Mail was getting into the act. In mid-February, it ran its biggest story. It said China had an orchestrated machine operating in Canada that had two primary aims. One was to ensure that a minority Liberal government was returned in 2021, and the other was to defeat certain Tory candidates. Work also points out that good intelligence agencies know the difference between intent and capabilities. Just because someone says they would like to do something doesn't mean they have the capacity to carry it out. Based on what I read, the reporting didn't make this distinction clear. It very much struck me that the Globe was not willing or able to make a distinction between expressions of intent and real capabilities. You know, the evidentiary base for which was not clear about, you know, forms of interference with nomination processes and so on, and the role of, of proxies, but it was all pretty murky. Here's another curious thing about this and other Globe and Mail stories. The basis of them were secret CSIS reports, which the Globe might not have in its possession. Instead, they said in their stories that they viewed these reports. But if they don't have them in their possession, that could be problematic. From my perspective, journalists should always ensure they have their own copies of such controversial material in case it's ever questioned. When David Johnson looked at the intelligence behind the Globe's story, he found there was unconfirmed indications a very small number of Chinese diplomats expressed a preference for the Liberals to the Tories in the 2021 election. But there was no evidence that China had a plan to orchestrate a Liberal minority government in 2021 or were determined the Conservatives not win. He found China did not prefer either party, merely candidates who were sympathetic to them. It really struck me that some of the language quoted associated with boasting by Chinese consular officials was, was clearly no more than that. It was boasting. We saw it throughout the Cold War on the part of, of Russian diplomats and intelligence officers who were super good at boasting about their capabilities and generally ran pretty inefficient intelligence networks. Soon afterwards, Sam Cooper began producing stories for Global News about Liberal MP Han Dong. Born in China, Dong was elected to Parliament in 2019. Cooper's confidential sources said CSIS had been investigating Dong for years and that he was one of the 11 candidates Beijing had backed. Cooper's sources said Dong was a witting affiliate in China's election interference networks, that there were irregularities with his 2019 nomination process, basically that China had helped Dong win the nomination. Cooper followed this up with an even more sensational story, claiming that in early 2021, Dong had suggested to the Toronto Consul General for China to delay releasing Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig from detention in China. The two Michaels had been arrested in 2018 after Canada detained a Huawei executive at the request of the U.S. government. Cooper's story claimed Dong said that by releasing the two Michaels, it would help the opposition Tories. Yeah, I think the global story in Handong made um, absolutely no sense to me. 
Indeed, the release of the two Michaels clearly would have helped the Liberals and Trudeau and not the Tories. Trudeau would have looked brilliant if he had managed to secure the release of the two Michaels before handing over the Huawei executive. And in Sam Cooper's reporting, again, we see this indication that this is an allegation for which he doesn't have corroborating evidence. Cooper did include a statement from Han Dong denying the allegations and stating he had in fact asked for the release of the two Michaels. The Han Dong story caused an uproar, forcing the MP to resign from the Liberal caucus. He gave an emotional speech in the Commons, vehemently denying the allegations, saying he'd actually told the Consul General the opposite, to release the two Michaels immediately. I want to assure Mr. Michael Spavert and Mr. Michael Covert and their families that I did nothing to cause them any harm. The day after Cooper's story ran, the Globe and Mail reached out to government sources who said the transcripts of Dong's conversation with the Consul General did not indicate he'd asked them to hold the two Michaels in prison. Dong promptly filed a lawsuit against Global News seeking $15 million. In his statement of claim, he denied the Global News stories point by point, including allegations he'd received any assistance from China or its operatives in 2019. Johnson examined the intelligence report about this incident and found the Cooper story to be false. Yet Cooper continues to stand by it, as does Global News. In the network statement of defense, it states that the allegations CSIS made about Dong are not, quote, presented as factual findings, end quote. They go on to say, quote, rather, the information from intelligence sources concerning Dong is clearly described as allegations and the responding positions of the various parties involved, including Dong, are reported, end quote. In short, if Global's confidential sources are wrong, well, it's not Global's fault. But stories using confidential intelligence sources kept coming. In May, the Globe and Mail reported that a secret CSIS report said Chinese officials had targeted certain MPs, including Tory MP Michael Chong and his family. It also said a Chinese diplomat in Toronto was involved. Chong has been critical of China's human rights record, in particular the treatment of the Uyghurs. This story also triggered an outcry in Ottawa. Chong, a former cabinet minister, now serves as the Tories' foreign affairs critic. But what was really going on with this story? After all, Chong had been completely unaware he was of any interest to China, having only been informed by the Globe and Mail reporters just before they ran their story. One would think that if Chong was a target of harassment, he would have known and personally seen some evidence of it. A 2021 CSIS report said Chong was targeted, yet there was no evidence Chong or his family had been harassed by Chinese officials. But Global Affairs Canada has recently issued a statement saying they did find efforts to smear Chong on WeChat, which is a Chinese social media app, some of which came from state media outlets and accounts. There was no evidence that you know, any physical harm was intended to Mr. Chong or had been enacted, and no evidence that some of these ideas that were floated by Chinese officials about you know, uh, possibly finding family members and putting pressure on them in, in order to intimidate a federal MP, any of that had taken place. Overall, the thrust of the Global News and Global Mail stories has been that the Liberals benefited in the last two elections from China's meddling at the expense of the Conservatives. Yet there's no solid evidence this is true. 
Professor Wark found the Globe referenced only a handful of intelligence reports in all of their recent reporting. Meanwhile, the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Walmsley, has said the facts behind the Globe stories are, quote, uncontroverted. I remain baffled by why the Globe and Mail has not published any of the reports that they received. And on top of that, has not published any rationale for not publishing the reports. I, I regard that as a responsibility that they have to their own readership. If they're not going to publish the reports, say, why not? And the other thing is that with the Globe and Mail reports, although Mr. Walmsley claims that you know none of the Globe and Mail stories have been called into account, the fact is that government officials have said that some of their reporting is in error. In late May, Johnson produced his initial report on the foreign interference matter, which included an examination of some of the intelligence that Global News and the Global Mail relied on. While he said there's no doubt that foreign governments are attempting to influence candidates and voters, the elections of 2019 and 2021 were well protected by mechanisms in place, and there's no basis to lack confidence in their results nor did he find examples of ministers or Trudeau or their offices ignoring intelligence advice or recommendations of foreign interference. In regards to the media stories where he examined the intelligence they relied on, he found there was misrepresentations, issues out of context, and outright falsehoods. He said they showed an incomplete picture of what was really going on. What was your response to David Johnson's report in terms of what he found is for, you know, what appears to be its veracity, its, its, its logic? I thought it was a good, solid report, and I thought many of the issues that he identified were spot on as things that needed to be looked at. Johnson stepped down as special rapporteur in June after weeks of being vilified by the Tories over claims he lacked objectivity. The stories that I focused on from the two media outlets here are only a selection of the many stories both ran on the topic of foreign interference. But I've examined the totality of the stories and almost all reveal the same pattern of being based on confidential sources or other intelligence sources without much corroborating detail and missing vital information or context. In June, Sam Cooper left Global News. He's since set up a Substack page to continue his work. Buda McBeal departed CSIS at the end of 2017, but she was not surprised by David Johnson's findings. This thing has become so partisan and, and he's been, you know, at the center of it, but he's basing his conclusion or assessment based on access to information, intelligence, the reports. I know that he's a man of integrity. I mean, he was our governor general, for God's sake. You know, like, I trust that he reviewed these files. So I will go with that because here is someone of integrity that has had access to this information, and that's his finding. Given the issues with CSIS, the problematic history with the Sidewinder report, and the fact that the reporters are only seeing a small selection of the intelligence on China and its interference, I feel they should have shown more caution, or at least more qualifiers, in the reporting on the matter. In the end, should there be a public inquiry? I think an inquiry would have some inherent obstacles, namely that CSIS wouldn't reveal what it knows about Chinese interference, either because its evidence is so weak, or it would expose how the agency collects information on people, and CSIS would not want to do that. So much of the inquiry would have to be held in camera, defeating the purpose of a public airing. Moreover, the partisan hysteria in Ottawa would likely ensure the inquiry devolves into a political football. 
Above all, the Tories would not want to hear that the allegations they've been slinging around for months are based on thin gruel. I've been reporting on this stuff and following the ins and outs of these institutions for years, and even I'm confused about what's going on. So a public inquiry might be worth the effort, as it might actually get to the bottom of whether there's been any foreign interference or not. That's your Canada land. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on that happening. We need listeners like you to make the decision to pay for our journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you're going to become a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You will be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. We need to hear different voices like today's voice. We need to hear different things about what's happening in the news, and we need original reporting in Canada. So join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. Additional reporting today from Bruce Livesey. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Theme music is by So-Called Syndications, handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.